Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to Poetic Resurrection. Today we have Andrew Seaton, writer of Spiritual Awakening, Made Simple. That is very important. <laughs> Thank welcome. you, Sonia. Great to be here talking with you. <laughs> I did read through the book. Throughout it, notice that you are the one noticing that you are reading. How is that working with Spiritual Awakening? Wow. You really started the interview with a deep and core <laughs> aspect of the whole theme of, of the book. Thank you also in the reading of the title of the book, in a way you kind of emphasized the latter part of the title, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple. And I wanted to put that in the title because as I explain in the preface, there's so much confusion and error and clutter out there in the inverted commas world of spirituality. And so many people are confused and I struggled all my life to try and make sense of it and pull, pull together the essentials. And when I finally managed to do that just a few years ago, and you know, in another month I'm 67, so I've been on the road of looking into how do we access this deeper aspects of what a human being is when there's just so many contradictory you know, messages, a lot of it's inspiring and yet it doesn't show you the how-to and all that sort of stuff. And when I finally managed to pull it together in a way that really worked for me personally, experientially, not just inspired me, but no, it started, I got some traction in my aspiration to wake up spiritually. And I thought, I'm going to write this book. And I feel even the emotion rising in me now as I express this, because it's so needed to show people, you know, actually, it's not complicated, this thing about that we are, in our essence, spiritual beings. How do we wake up to that? I don't think I put it in my book, that, but Oscar Wilde made a comment, something like, you know, most people are other people. And it's sad to see, this is very much paraphrasing him, it, it's tragic. He said, how few people possess their souls before they die. And again, the emotion is rising in me because who we are in our essence is so beautiful and precious, but it's a rare human being that realizes that experientially in their life. And I wrote this book to say, you know, here's how it works. Here's how the pieces of the puzzle come together. And it's quite natural and achievable for anybody who wants to wake up to the essence of who we are. Now, to come back to your question about how I've mentioned at the start of many of the chapters, notice from time to time yes. that you are the awareness noticing the reading happening or noticing that you're reading, or noticing thoughts popping up about what you're reading. Because this noticer of our perceptions and the noticer of the thoughts that pop up in our mind and the noticer sometimes of emotions that are triggered by some of the thoughts that pop into them, it's the noticer of those things that is who we are. We're not what we experience, we're not the thoughts that run in every waking moment. You know, they just run and they run and they run. And we live our lives, most human beings, we live our lives identified with the thoughts that are running through our mind all the time. We think that's who we are and we think that's life. And we, and we tend in the main to think that the thoughts that are running through our mind, they're true. You know, <laughs> I can rely on these and I base my life on them, basically. Yes. We do this. And yet they're not true. And, and methodically, it's explained in the book how, and I know that a lot of what you do, uh, Sonia, in your podcast and you, your interest is very much around human perception. And many of your listeners, your regular listeners, will be quite familiar with this, uh, this understanding that almost all of our perception is very selective. We notice certain things and we don't notice certain other yes. things according to our background according to our interests, our fears, our desires, our past experiences. So human perception is so selective and also what we do select to perceive, it's very interpretive. 
what we come to sort of feel that we have learned about ourselves and about life isn't the reality. It's a selective and interpretive construction based on how we've perceived things, perceived what we've read, perceived what we've experienced, interpreted what we've experienced. And this is what in the subtitle and through the book I refer to as becomes the mist of the mind. And we tend to live in this mist of the, uh, that's created by the mind. Uh, Vedic literature in India refers to this as Maya. Some people say it's because the world is an illusion. It sort of is, but it's more that our experience of the world is an illusion. <laughs> I mean, if I knock my head against the wall, it's going to hurt. And so it's not really fully an, an illusion that the, the wall is there and my head is separate from it. So much of what we think we know about who we are and about the world around us and about life is really an illusion. It's really a bit of a dream. It's not reality. And because it's not, what we perceive isn't the reality. So many of your listeners will have this desire to see what's real, see what's true. And what gets in the way of us seeing what's real and what's true is all the conditioned patterns of interpreting our perception and in believing in and buying into the thoughts and the, and the emotions and all these patterns of functioning that have been built upon uh, conditioned interpretations of our experience. When we begin to notice, and this is what the book is about, as you've just pointed out so, so beautifully and, and so so initially, it's good that we're straight into here because the, the truth of who we are is this beautiful, peace-filled, love-filled, playfulness-filled, intuition-filled, formless awareness that for most of us has kind of been in the background, as it were, all of our lives. And yet we've kind of dimly had this sense that, that, that I'm me, you know. And one of the little exercises you might remember, Sonia, that it and in most of my interviews, I've mentioned this because it's so simple and so such a, something that your listeners can latch on to experientially now as we are even talking. Remember in the, in the first chapter, I, I point out to the reader, now to the listener, if you think back to when you were a little child, didn't you feel like you were you then? Well, yeah, of course I did when I was five, when I was 10, I felt like I was me. I had certain memories and things like that and things that happened and then this is where I was or at school or I was at home, whatever. But aside from their memories and things, you basically had this sense that you were you. Yeah, of course I did. And when you were a teenager, mm -hmm. did you feel like you were you? Yeah, I did. When you were in your 20s, did you feel like 30s, your 40s, your 50s? Did you feel, do you feel like you are you now? Yeah, I do. I've always been me. And yet, have your roles changed? Over all those years, well, yeah, I could list probably 20 different roles that I've had in my life. So none of the roles that we've had in our life are who we are because they've all changed. And yet I've always been me. That's a constant. I've always been this me, mm -hmm. observing, noticing what I've been experiencing. And things that give me pleasure and the things that uh, upset me, have they been different at different times? Yeah, they have. What about your emotions? Do they change from time to time? Yeah, sometimes they change minute by minute. So the emotions that sometimes we experience aren't who we are. If I ever said to myself, you know, I'm depressed. Well, no, you're not depressed because there was a time, maybe an hour ago, maybe a year ago, when you didn't feel depressed. So depressed can't be who you are. Depressed is something that you're noticing right now. I'm here, the awareness Noticing that there's a feeling of depression or a feeling of sadness or a feeling of gladness or whatever it might be. So, yes, we are the noticer mm -hmm. of our experience in life. I really feel that's true. And you do cover something about the karma. Karma is confusing to me sometimes because sometimes I feel that the soul is here to learn. So if the soul mm -hmm. is here to learn then karma is not good or bad. It mm -hmm. is just here to learn. My other flip side is that if you do things that are hurtful to others, that you oh, will pay God. in some way in an, or another, because that is your lesson to learn how well, to treat people well. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you feel about the soapbox experience <laughs> versus There's karma? There's so much even in that past life? <laughs> short kind of short expression of, of, <laughs> of perception about karma and your question. 
Oh, there's so much in that. We're here to learn. And uh, if I do something bad, then I'm going to get a consequence and I've got to learn from that, these sorts of things. First of all, let's look at this notion of good, good karma and bad karma, because you said if, you, if this is so, then there's no, you know, there's no good or bad karma, it's just whatever. And I would agree with that. And the, the main reason that I agree with this uh, difference, and many people very deeply have this assumption, if they use the word karma at all, or something that's kind of parallel to it, it's in the sense of, you know, I'm experiencing good karma. If I do this, I'll experience some good karma or he's experienced, that's just bad karma. What you've done there, you know, you must've done something in your past life or last year, <laughs> you know, that's, and now you're paying the price. You're paying the price. There's this kind yeah. of judgment aspect around karma, you know, because you did this, you're going to get this result, either a reward or a punishment in a way, if you want to really simplify it right down, it's completely false. Mm-hmm. Um, let's not get hung up either on the word karma. It's only a term. It's, it's only a concept. And different people might have built different interpretations of what that concept means. But so whether we use the word karma or not, this is what I'm trying to explain, is what happens is that what we experience is the result of conditioned patterns of interpreting who we are and what the world is like, which inevitably then play out and they kind of become self-fulfilling these conditioned assumptions. So my, my sense of the word karma or what we experience in life isn't so much that we need to learn lessons because we've done something bad and now we need to learn the lesson from that or we've done something good and we need to conclude that that's a good thing to keep doing because then we'll continue to get... It's not so much that we need to learn lessons as to what a, a human being has the opportunity to do in this life is to... Not so much learn a lesson, but to see that the pattern, the conditioned patterns of operating that have resulted in certain kinds of experience have no reality. When we question those conditioned patterns, they cease to have to then continue to play out in our life to kind of confront us with the consequences of this misconceived mental interpretation of life. It's actually not real. The interpretations we come to make of, of life play out in our experience to show us, as it were, what these patterns that we've bought into are so that we can say, well, my life's not that fulfilling at the moment or it's damn horrible. And so we, we see what's playing out and then begin to question the patterns that have created this experience. And when we question them and they dissolve, we no longer need to continue to have that experience to show us this old pattern. And then life takes on a very, a very different flavor. Having seen through what's not real, we're then able to be this beautiful expression of a divine energy, if you want to put it that way, this, of this soul that we are. We can be this, this expression of the universe, this individual expression of the universal intelligence in life that's no longer inhibited by or distorted by the conditioned patterns of experience and so our life becomes much more beautiful it becomes not only more beautiful for us to experience but it becomes yeah. something more beautiful as an expression in the world and i think the word lesson has a bad rep because it yes. automatically means yes. judgment or punishment where you you were an educator i think of it as a learning i think of lessons as learning as another step to go through, yes. not a punishment. There was someone I was listening to and it made me laugh because they said, thinking that good things should happen to you is because you're a good person is like having a lion not attack <laughs> you because you're a vegetarian. Yeah. Because they have nothing to do with the other. In a way they do, but then they don't, you know? So it's just, I mean, if I'm going to start a, an argument with someone on the street, mm -hmm. I expect them to argue back. I mean, it's just like, yes. then I'd be looking for trouble. But that's not the kind of lessons I'm talking about. I'm talking about learning about life, learning about your soul. That to me is a lesson. But I guess that the word lesson has so much judgment attached. It really to does it. on this notion of learning and on the, on the notion of judgment. Where do they, they come from? The mind. These are the games of the, of the conceptual conditioned mind, which we tend as human beings to identify with. But actually, that's a mistake. Our mind is a tool that we have and can be very, very useful. 
But when we identify it and with, with it, identify with it, we think that we are our mind, and our mind loves to play these games of distinguishing between this and this and judging them. So it's the mind that plays this game, I'm a good person or I'm a bad person. It's the mind that plays this game, even if we want to come back to karma and says, you know, if I've done this thing and because I've been a good person, I'm, I'm kind of now experiencing this reward. Or because I'm unhappy now, it's because I did such and such in the past and I was a bad person and now I'm reaping the consequence. All this is mind games. There's no reality into it. There's any concept or definition or judgment that you have about yourself, about who you are, it's imagination. It's something that's been constructed in the mind. I'm a good person or I'm a bad person. Or even, you know, I'm a spiritual person or I'm, I don't believe in God. I'm not a spiritual or, you know, whatever. All this stuff is the mind games. You might remember, Sonia, that in the introduction I emphasized and explaining the title, Spiritual Awakening, it's something very different from the, a book primarily about spiritual concept. Much of what goes down and is expressed verbally and, and in writing in the world that we live in about spirituality is really concepts, ideas. Let's talk about spirituality. Now, ultimately, spirituality isn't something that you can talk about. And that's why that's what the word means. It's spiritual in the, because it's not conceptual and it's not physical. Rather than I'm a spiritual person because I think a lot about spiritual concepts and I think about my life and whether I'm living in a good way or a bad way and I'm treating people nice or I'm a moral person or I'm an immoral person or I'm an amoral person. All this is just mind games. There's no spirituality in any of that. Spirituality is having this growing sense of your own beingness, presence, awake presence that notices the thoughts that come up the interactions that you're having. I'm having an interaction with you, Sonia, but I'm not totally lost in that interaction. I'm present in this interaction, noticing it happening. I'm here in the truth of who I am, not just exchanging kind of, as it were, conditioned patterns of conversation so that it's not mm -hmm. just me identified with mind now that lives my life. It's me Noticing continually still lots of thoughts are coming. Yes, indeed, they are. Lots of emotions still come up. And now I'm much more, though, not carried away in those things, not, not, not caught up in them and not victimized, as it were, by them, but observing them. And that's the truth of me. So I can be peaceful and even notice, as it were, what, might, what the mind might say are unpleasant thoughts or a difficult emotion pops up there's this background that I'm this peaceful me, aware presence that's noticing this thing arise and then it passes. The awareness also, we take so much time in either being in the essence of who we are or battling our mind saying, no, you're just a perception I had. And we keep questioning our mind. I think the mind is a wonderful thing. If we could learn how to cultivate it for it to work with our essence. And that's where I think there's a split. You're either going to use your mind or you're going to use your spirituality. And then there's people that are forever, like you said, the seekers, which I fell into that a long time ago too. I kept seeking a new way of learning to be spiritually awake and, or learning to be more in tuned. But I think it's a step you have to go through to see what's available. And finally you say, you know what? I need to apply this. <laughs> I need to know who I yeah. really am because I got, I got tired of reading about everybody else. It's like, come on, you know, okay, now thank you for your, what do we call insight? Because a lot of these books have incredible insight and I'm grateful for it because it made me think and question myself. So I learned about myself, but there's a time that you got to step off the seeker path. Mm -hmm. And then you touch on this in your book. You got to get off that seeker path and, and be. Yes, yes, absolutely. It can be such a trap to think of yourself as a spiritual seeker. Because uh, implied in the notion of seeker is that you're looking, looking, looking. You're not here having. No, you're looking, looking, looking. And many people play out their lives having this self-identity, self-concept of being a spiritual seeker. So my suggestion would be to your listeners, throw out 
the notion that you're a spiritual seeker and be present. It'll show you in very simple ways how to come in this moment into the essence of who you are so that it's not something you need to seek. And in other ways, in other places in the book, I point out to people, you already are this spiritual reality that you think of, think about seeking. People talk about, I have a higher self. I'd say flip it on its head. Don't try to align who you are with your higher self or check in regularly with your higher self. You are the higher self. That's the only truth of who you are. The other self that you sometimes get caught up in, this conceptual sense of who you are, that's the imposter. (laughs) That's the illusion. Use these simple tools that I offer and the simple laying out of how it is that we come to get caught up in our mind and in our conditioned patterns. Use that simple explanation and those simple tools to come back in this moment to the truth of who you are. There's no seeking involved. You are it, and it's simple to come back in this moment to being that. See, we build up such an array of concepts around the wonderfulness of what's spiritual. We give all sorts of labels to it, divinity and this and that and the other, and we talk about worshipping and being reverent, and this is all mental clutter because the sacredness of life is who you are. And you don't have to go on a long journey to find it. In fact, thinking of it as a journey separates you from it because you're it now. It's simple. And forget about all the elaborate concepts that have been wrapped around it by people who've been sincere and and aspired to it and been inspired people by people who were spiritually awake. And yet because they're operating and still caught up in their own minds, They've given us all this stuff, which is just mind stuff, and it's getting in the way. (laughs) It's simple to come back to the beautiful truth of who you are. It's sacred, all that stuff, but it's not complicated. It's simple. It's just beautiful you presence. Yes, and when it comes to the higher self, I mean, I know that it's semantics and people call it the soul, the higher self, the universal energy. It's something that they feel comfortable with the title of it but I think of it as is the soul and the essence and but I have gone on a journey you know there's sometimes I go out into the forest and I go hiking and I go into the mountains I go back into nature and me doing that brings it closer to me because now my mind is quiet I've had enough time in nature to erase and quiet my mind because what I find is when I go out in nature, I'm using myself as an example, but if, when I go out in nature, my yes. mind starts to be quiet. It's not chattering as much because I'm in tune with yes. the world. I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm in yes. tune with well, nature. Again, I mean, this is beautiful. And so you, nature can have that effect on us because the essence of life expressed in nature is almost palpable and it can draw forth this subtle essence of who we are and as you say it can it can help us to kind of have the mental activity fall away and this essence of who we are becomes more there as as this beautiful stillness and appreciation of the of the stillness and and the mystery that we are and that is expressed as nature but again i would say why think of this as a journey? It's not a journey then. Just use nature then can be one of the one of the tools that you use. Yes, if you can be with nature regularly, it's lovely as a tool to come back, not so much on a journey, to this moment now as the truth of who I am. I love nature. I'm very in tune with nature. Let's see. It says here, the motivation to do what comes from <laughs> suffering. Talk to me about how suffering is a motivator. We don't like it. <laughs> we don't like it. And that's why it motivates. Nobody does, eh? but, but it's a good teacher. Well, it can be a teacher. Um, if we get fed up with it and we come to a point where it's a, damn it, I don't want to suffer no more. If we get to that point, then we are prepared to question some things that we've assumed in the past to be true or to be valid about who we are or about life. Up until that point, 
as I say, we grow from babyhood through our childhood, through adulthood, building up a constructed reality, a conceptual notion of who we are and what life is like and what the world is like. And while ever it's basically felt to be, you know, working sort of okay, we tend not to like to question any of that because we are identified with our concepts and our beliefs and views about who we are and about life, because we think that's who we are. If somebody points out Mm -hmm. that something is wrong about that, we don't like it too much because it's like almost that that would mean losing part of who I am. You see what I mean? I hope your listeners can see what what I'm saying here. Um, And so we tend not to be that open to making to questioning or making big changes to how we think about who we are or even certainly not to this notion that I might question the very idea that who I who I think I am that's not who I am really I don't I don't like that very much it's kind of you know a bit spooky but what makes us willing to to start to question the illusion basically that's what it is this illusion that we live in this dream that we live in what makes us willing to eventually start to question it suffering makes us willing to because we come to a point where damn it i've been so happy for such a long period of time or i've been so unhappy recently with such intensity i'm over it i'm fed up i'm now opened to to looking at what's going wrong here then we become i in the book you might remember sonia that i talk about two primary kinds of learning that human beings experience One is the kind of learning where we have a new perception or a new experience and we kind of selectively perceive it and interpret it so that it fits basically in with our existing way of seeing how things are. In simple terms, it's like this. We interpret stuff so that it basically fits in with our pre-existing assumptions and view of life and who we are. There's a different kind of learning, which is much more rare, except in its most trivial aspects. And that's where some new experience or new input contradicts in such a significant way something that we've previously assumed to be the case, that we can't just fit it into our existing structures. We've got to kind of dismantle something in our existing way of seeing things. We've got to unlearn something because something in our experience has shown us that there's there's something there that's not really viable anymore. It, It can't be the case because here's this evidence. And this kind of different kind of learning that requires some unlearning, as I say, it's much more rare and it can be very uncomfortable. And some people can actually fight tooth and nail before they'd be willing to give any legitimacy to what they're experiencing or to what somebody else is saying or to what evidence is presenting them with. They, they fight tooth and nail to, to even be open-minded enough to acknowledge that that's there because it means then they've got to question something about how they've seen things in the past. But what makes us willing to do that? Suffering. So if any of your listeners, Sonia, are experiencing a high degree or an intense degree of unhappiness or dissatisfaction or frustration or suffering in their lives, it can be the proverbial blessing in disguise. Because that experience is allowing you, and maybe even in your staying this long in this interview, it's starting to allow you to be open to hearing what's being discussed in this interview. And it might prompt you then to be to say, gee, I'd like to get hold of this book, Spiritual Awakening, A Made Simple. And I'd like, like to really see how it can help me to see through what's been troubling me. And maybe it's not all re- as real as I've felt it is in the past. And I might finally be able to be free. I might finally be able to have the peace that I wish so deeply I could have in my life. Well, there's many people that will go against their family and their loved ones just to stick to a belief. And so that is taking me into the other section that you talked about suffering, which is grief and heartbreak. I agree with you, acknowledge it. There was one more uh, line you said, allow the emotion to be there, acknowledge it without overly indulging it. The overly indulging it part, I've seen people do that, where they turn everybody else away. In their suffering, they tell you about it so you could suffer with them. So they don't want to be alone. And in a way, that's there was one person that a parent died. And 
I'm blessed my parents are still alive, but I would be devastated if, when my parents died. It's not a matter if, it's when. But it went on, posting it on social media, I swear to you, for almost two years until someone finally said, when are you going to get over it? <laughs> and that made them angry. But what I noticed in their postings, they stopped. I think they needed someone to say something to them and say, you're wallowing in it or what? Yes, yes, wallowing in it, indulging it, overly indulging it. As you said, and very interesting, it might have been a brave person who said that to that person too, because they might have had a sense that this person's really stuck here and actually enjoying being stuck here. This is the key, this is the key here, that our suffering can become part of our identity and we can actually relish it. That I suffered the grief of my mother or my spouse last year or 10 years ago, they died and they didn't just die natural causes because they were old, but they died tragically. And we love this word tragically, you know, in this car accident or it, this shooter came and shot them. And it could have been one of 10 other people, but it was my mother or my wife or my husband. And they get, they build up such an identity of, of I'm this person who has suffered this horrible tragedy in my life. All that's conceptual identity. This is going to maybe hit some people between the eyes right now. It's not reality. You are the peace-filled soul, if you want to use that word. I tend not to use it very often because it comes like so many words do with so much baggage. But you are the formless awareness, peace-filled, love-filled essence of life that is noticing your experience of life. You're not the ideas that you've built up about who you are, because any idea you've ever had about yourself, you've also probably can look back and see there were times when I thought about myself in the opposite way. <laughs> like yesterday, I thought I was a bad person because I did such and such and somebody else criticized me severely for it. And I felt, yeah, I'm a bad person. I did that. I did say what they said. I said, and I shouldn't have. And yet two days ago, some, I did some, such and such to somebody and they said, oh, God bless you. You are such a wonderful person. And I felt really good. So I felt really good. I'm a good person. Then the next day I felt really bad. I'm such a bad, I'm a schmuck. I said such and such. None of those things is true. None of those things is who you are. They were emotions triggered by believing a thought, I'm a bad person, a thought, I'm a good person. Somebody else's thought, judgment, come back to that where we used before. It's just the conceptual mind, conditioned mind playing in here. You're a bad person because you did that or you said that. It's just a thought. It has no reality. And if I buy into the thought maybe expressed to me, Sonia, you say to me, Andrew, I read such and such in your book, or I heard last week that you did such and such. And, <laughs> and you, I was surprised, Andrew, you're actually a bad person. And now if I buy into that, I'm, it's only my conceptual mind buying into a thought sown by your conceptual mind, conditioned mind, I'm a bad person. It's a nonsense. And yet human beings do tend to live in the nightmare of this constant debate in the community, in society, in our interactions with the people in our lives and in our own heads, this constant debate of, you know, what kind of person am I really? You know, is it good? Is it bad? Am I good? Am I bad? And you'll see, Sonia, you'll know that I talk about this and help to liberate people from this kind of stuff in a particular chapter in the book and in the, in the book in general. It's all ultimately not real. And when you question it in simple ways that I show people how to do, you realize for yourself, not just taking it from because I'm saying it or somebody else says it. When you discover for yourself experientially that you can't know for certain that any such idea is actually true, when you realize mm -hmm. that, it kind of crumbles into nothingness. And then the emotion that was triggered by believing that thought you're a bad person, for example, that the thought can't be shown to be true for certain, the emotion of guilt or shame or unworthiness or, or I'm just not good enough, it crumbles also into nothingness. Then what's left, Sonia, what's left is the spiritual truth of who you are. Yeah. And, it's, and it's beautiful, it's presence, it's lovely. I am grateful, even though it was very hard to get here, and I'm still working on it every day to just quiet the mind and be. But I also find that with grief and heartache, I find that it's 
hard because we gave away some of our own essence to that person. So now we don't feel as sure-footed and it's claiming that essence back to make us strong. Because honestly, when I pass, no, no time soon, <laughs> if I, when I pass, I don't want to see my loved ones suffer. I don't want them to see them in grief forever or in heartache. I want them to live. They're still there. They need to live. You know, I, it's, and I think if, if you think about in grief, when you lose someone, I don't think the person you're grieving for really wants you to suffer. <laughs> you know, so. No, no, no. And, uh, you know, you've touched on a, on a very, probably, you know, one of the most sensitive and touchy kind of emotions that people, we human beings do experience in our lives, this concept of grief, emotion of grief, this experience, if you want to say it, of the emotion of grief, this energy of grief. So it's kind of a tricky one for me to talk about now to illustrate for your listeners the principle of what I'm saying and the experience of what I'm saying of questioning a thought and then finding that the associated emotion dissolves because it's one of the most intensely felt ones. So, But nevertheless, I have to address it here now because you've raised it. Yes, when, when somebody we love passes away, in the book, I give the example of a, a beloved dog that I once owned who died of old age and was in great pain when he died. And I took him into the veterinary surgery. And even though it was nighttime, you know, after hours of veterinary surgery, I had to wear sunglasses <laughs> to, to cover the tears that uh, in my eyes at the, at the grief of losing my little dog. From my own experience, I give this example and then lead the reader through this questioning our assumptions about grief. And without going all through that now, which is a bit tricky to do, naturally there will be tender feelings when we lose a loved one. Yes, there will be. It's And to come back to you, you were saying before, you know, about wallowing or overly indulging in emotion. We don't want to go into that. However, we don't want to block it out and make a kind of a pretense of, you know, I'm going to be very objective about this and I'm not feeling anything. No, that's silly. There will be tender feelings when we lose a loved one, whether it be your puppy dog or your mother or your child or whatever. Yes, there will be. But grief, this overwhelming grief is something different again, and that is not necessary. Again, tricky to go through it all right now. But when we question the assumptions, it basically then emotion is triggered by a belief that says it's bad that such and such died. So let's look at briefly a couple of the, the core thoughts about that that we can question. It's bad that such and such died. Do you know for certain that all the flow on effects of your loved one dying are going to be bad? Your readers are going to have to agree with me as I, when, as I have to acknowledge when I ask myself that kind of question. I can't know what all the flow and effects are going to be from anything that I experience. So I can't know that all the flow and effects of my loved one dying are going to be bad. Is it possible to think of anything good that might come out of your loved one dying? Well haven't particularly been flooded with those thoughts lately but yes i guess if i i guess if i ask myself and isn't it nice that see we can laugh even in the midst of this dealing dealing with this question of grief yeah. isn't that nice and isn't that interesting because we're kind of yeah. noticing this issue of grief here we're not caught up in it right in this moment isn't that yeah. that just the fact that that little shared laughter sonia between you and me then that's a lovely illustration of what i'm getting at here because it breaks this assumption that it's the end of the world, you know, but it's not the end of the world. Can So come back to my question. Is it possible to think of anything good that could possibly come out of my loved I one passing so. away? Then people will always have to then acknowledge, well, yes, I suppose it is possible that good, something could, could, I might, you know, start to learn to become more kind of emotionally um, independent is, you know, one possible thing in the book. I'm going to talk about my dog dying, you know, or somebody else's, you know, dog dying. Is it possible that it could lead to something good? Well, yes, I might get another dog that might enrich my life in different ways than the, than the one that I had before. Or I might decide not to get another dog and then suddenly then my life becomes more free. I, I'm, I'm more able to do different things with my life that I wasn't able to do because of the constraints of owning a dog. And that enriches my life in ways that I, 
you know, all sorts of possibilities are going to occur to people. And so then you ultimately have to acknowledge, you know, yes, it is possible that something good could come out of it. And so the depth of the grief is triggered by believing, not just having, but believing this thought that it's bad that that person has died. And it is only a thought. When we look at the thought, when we question the thought, we acknowledge, gee, you know, I don't know that that thought is true. The thought that it's bad that such and such died, I can't know that it's true. It's just as easily it could be seen in the opposite way. I can see that it could lead to things that are good. Another person could see that in some ways, in these various ways, it could be seen as good. Then we begin to realize that it's a mental construction around grief and the badness of somebody dying. It's not the reality of somebody dying. As I say, yes, we acknowledge that these tender feelings are there. Tears may still flow. The the sense of, of lovingness that we've had for that person or that animal, that pet, those feelings may still be there, yes, but we're not overwhelmed by them. We're not overtaken by them. We're there peaceful, observing experience of what's happened. I had a friend of mine pass away. He was in so much pain. It was, I guess I was kind of relieved that he was no longer in pain because he died from an illness. And so he was, you know, a morphine drip because of his illness. And it just broke my heart to see that he was still optimistic and everything, but it it was, he accepted that he had to go, but it was just really hard for me to also see that. I was relieved that he was no longer in pain. Did I miss him? Did I was, did I go through grief? Yes. Yeah, that's a nice illustration. You know, when we come back into presence, that is who we are, what we discover is that this is the reality of life, this subtleness that we can't build effectively concepts around. It's it's even to say it's an experience is a bit wrong because if I experience something, there's me and there's this thing that I experience. It's this beingness of our essence. When that comes more and more to the fore and we enjoy this beautiful, lovely presence, we realize for ourselves that nothing that's real can ever be lost, missed out on, or threatened. All of those are part of the outward, illusory aspect of life experience. The reality, what's real, is spiritual. Not as a concept of spiritual, but as this experience of beingness. Then we begin to realize, you know, everything is okay. Nothing that's real can be lost, missed out on, or threatened. Disbelieving thoughts plus being the noticer equals spiritual awakening. So you're, you're the formula there. <laughs> when it comes down to it, uh, it's simple. We get, since babyhood, we come into the world very vulnerable, don't we, as human beings? For mm-hmm. years, we're completely dependent on care from outside to survive. And so we come in and begin immediately building various conditioned patterns around feeling safe and feeling secure and being able to survive. We start buying into a whole lot of, a huge amount of stories and assumptions that are in the culture around us about what we require to be uh, happy, to be fulfilled in life. And most of them are myths. Human beings come into this life as babies, tremendously, you know, vulnerable and dependent on the world around them, on on care from intimate caregivers and food and all the rest of it. For years, we're very dependent as human beings. And so we start to build up all sorts of conditioned patterns of interpreting ourselves as something separate from the world around us. And yet, looking for all this, what are all the strategies then that are going to help me to survive and to be secure and to to find, you know, happiness in my life. And we buy into more and more of these stories that are in the culture around us about what we need to have or to experience or to be, self-concept identities even, what do we need to be secure and safe and have a happy life? As we grow out of the vulnerability of our early childhood and come into adulthood, almost all of these conditioned assumptions are actually myths. 
And yet we're so caught up in them that we're looking for our happiness and security in the world outside us. We're looking to our experience to give us what we need, what we need from the world outside us when it comes right down to it. Such a little thing amount in this aspect, this aspect. We need some clothes and, you know, we need some shelter and we need food and so forth. And that all the television ads and everything continue to encourage us to buy into. But the truth of life is that, and I use this phrase several times, and it's the whole theme of the book, you might recall, Sonia, that the things that we value most as human beings, peacefulness, lovingness, beauty, contentedness, playfulness, creativity, intuition, all these things are who we actually are. They're not things that we have to go and look for from the world outside us. And we hone in on one of those in particular, the big, big, big assumption in life, the one with the the L word, love. Most people spend their lives looking for love. From outside, we feel, you know, if I want to be happy, I want to find somebody to love me. It's nice. It's nice to have somebody to love you, but it's not essential. And one of the core reasons why it's not essential is because love actually is your very nature. And when you're present, when you've questioned any thoughts that are buzzing around your head and maybe troubling you and any emotions that they perhaps have triggered, and you do come back into this moment, aware presence, it's peace-filled and there's no sense of lacking anything. There's no sense of lacking love. In fact, what begins to bubble up within us, within me, when I'm present, what begins to bubble up is these different flavors of consciousness and sometimes that flavor of consciousness that bubbles up is the lovingness and what i discover is that actually what gives me more delight than anything else is not being loved by somebody it's loving it's allowing the flow of this what is my very nature love in the world and so these assumptions that are out there in the culture tricking us, tricking us, tricking us, seducing us every day, every time we turn the TV on or the radio or drive down the road and here's all the billboards and everywhere we're confronted with, crowded in by all these messages of what we need from the world outside us to be happy. And they're all myths. But I've also, since you brought up the child, we need so much from the outside world when we're first born. I wonder if that has anything to do with us thinking that's why we look for love. Because initially when we were born, we were waiting for our parents to love us. Yes. And parents have a tendency, unless you had horrible parents, because there are some out there, they have a tendency to just love us unconditionally anyway. Yes. But I think that's why we probably look for love outside of us because We were so vulnerable when we were born. Absolutely. And we needed everything. And this is why it is the inevitable experience of a human being that we get caught up in building and then living out a whole set of conditioned operating patterns that are kind of triggered by our sense of separateness and vulnerability that we begin to tune into from our earliest babyhood. Yes, because that we are vulnerable as babies and as, as young children, we build up this conditioned interpretation of who we are and what the world is like. And here's the kind of patterns that are going to help me survive. That is the inevitable human experience. But, and this is a, a great big but, the purpose of that experience is so that human beings can then question those conditioned interpretations and discover that they're not real that they're not true. The pattern of human experience is to come in to this world of form, to buy into the minds, the whole mind-body systems, patterns of conditioned operating, and have that become self-fulfilling as our life experience, and then question it and see through it to the truth that life is actually spiritual. It's not ultimately material or intellectual. It's a, it's a beingness of this. It's, a, it's a, an awakening to this reality. It's not a being conceptually convinced about this different view on things. It's waking up, out, seeing through the mist of the mind to the reality of the here and now 
and its beautiful beingness as our nature and as the essential nature of all of what the manifested world that we see around us. The book has been very good for bringing into perspective. And I think it would help someone that is also starting out getting through some of the clutter. So in closing, what would you like to say to the audience? Well, we've talked a lot about how what the mind tells us isn't reliable. The mind, and I explain in the book, there are certain contexts and certain practical matters where, yes, of course, it's wonderful to have a mind and it can be a wonderful tool for us. But in general, our identification with the mind and its, its stories about who I am and the world around me and all that, it's not a reliable faculty and it's not ultimately even who we are. So I want to leave your listeners with this thought that it's a thought about a message that you've been getting, perhaps some people, perhaps only occasionally, some people, perhaps a lot of the time, which is completely false, only exists in imagination. And that is, and it's a quote from the book, everything bad that you have ever believed about yourself is false. It was just the judging play of the conditioned mind, just a figment of your imagination. So I want to just throw that out for your listeners to hopefully just even take some burden off their shoulders as an, a very initial thing. All the troubled thoughts perhaps about that are inwardly turned about who you are and how you're not good enough or whatever it might be, it's nothingness. It's games only of the mind. The truth of you is beautiful, sacred, and simple to discover. Thank you. And how can people reach you or get the book? Thanks, uh, Sonia. Well, uh, my book's pretty much, you know, everywhere. It's out there. It's on Amazon, most online bookstores. You can get it as an ebook or, or as a paperback. It's in many bookstores too, physical bookstores. If you're often an ebook uh, reader, I'd urge you to consider getting the paperback in this case, because I talk in the book about how it's really to be used as a manual. It's, it's something to keep with you and read over and over and to dip in from time to time. It's much better and more accessible to you if you've got it there as a physical thing, uh, as a preference. Also, if you want to check out a bit more uh, about the book, the preface and the introduction are on my website. Uh, along with some early comments about the book and some other things and other, uh, certain information about, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one support sessions that I offer people and so forth. Uh, that's all at my website, which is awakeningmadesimple.org. Awakeningmadesimple.org. Thank you so much for doing this episode. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge and have a blessed day. Thank you, Sonia. You too. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.